Everything is yours. Every last little speck of You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host, Stephen Roach. This is episode 10. In this episode, I'm going to change the format up a bit and diverge from presenting a keynote message to introduce you to an artist and a longtime friend of mine, Johnny Rogers, who goes under the moniker Cinder Talk. Some of you listening may have been at the last Breath in the Clay gathering we did, and if so, you had the privilege of seeing Cinder Talk perform live. It was absolutely phenomenal, one of my favorite performances of the year. I recently had the opportunity to catch up with Johnny in Vancouver, Washington, where we sat down and recorded a conversation which I'll be sharing excerpts from as well as samples of his music. For those of you who may not be familiar with Johnny's music, he is a songwriter and composer who primarily uses tuned wine glasses in his compositions, accompanied by acoustic and electronic instrumentation. His music has appeared in film and television, including the recent fourth-line films release, The Psalms, which is a conversation between Bono and Eugene Peterson. If you haven't seen this film, I highly recommend it. It is extremely thought-provoking and has been getting a lot of traction the past few weeks among artists and people of faith. As a matter of fact, I contributed my own thoughts to the conversation in a blog that I wrote, which you can find at stephenroach.org. And I'll also put a link to it on makersandmystics.com. But before we jump into the conversation, I want to say part of my intention in doing these podcasts is not just to share my own thoughts or philosophies about creativity and our spiritual walk, but it's also to introduce you to artists whom I think will challenge you or inspire you in your own creative pursuit. Cinder Talk is definitely one of those artists who is doing exceptional work which I find both challenging and inspiring. I'll put a link to his work on makersandmystics.com so you can keep up with what he's doing as well. And lastly, I just wanted to take a second and say thanks to everyone who is listening to these podcasts. You know, I create these not really knowing what effect it's having in people's lives, but recently I've gotten multiple emails from folks all over the world thanking me for doing these. And so yeah, thanks back to you for listening. I always appreciate hearing your feedback, so please send me an email and let me know which episodes have impacted you. I'd love to know which ones you find compelling or challenging. Let's keep the conversation going. Also, I hope I will see all of you at the next Breath in the Clay Gathering, which will be in March of 2017 in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So you got plenty of time to save up for a plane ticket or plan a road trip. Anyways. This is excerpts from my conversation with Cinder Talk. Well, first things first, I'm really curious how you stumbled upon wine glasses. I know you're a multi-instrumentalist. You play, I don't know how many instruments, uh, guitar, piano, uh, vocals, but how did you stumble onto tuned wine glasses? What, what was that all about? Well, I grew up in um, the world of just playing really organic instruments. I grew up as a guitar player, and then I was a guitar player in rock bands for a long time, um, playing instruments like piano and guitar and all these other things, but I never uh, owned any of the instruments with which you make electronic music, but I was always really interested in electronic music. Um, 
European electronic music, most of the stuff that I discovered through an early love of Bjork and then on in. Mm. And um, in the early 2000s, I was developing a new music for myself where I was really immersed for a while in in the world of classical music mm-hmm. from, let's say, Hildegard von Bingen all the way up through Arvo Pert, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was really interested in the the sounds that organic instruments can make under the hands of real players. Mm-hmm. Coupled with that was my interest in some of the sounds and textures from electronic music. And um, I thought glass would be a really great instrument to bridge the gap between those worlds. Mm-hmm. I had discovered, uh, I had been listening to a, a piece called Black Angels, which is by a composer named George Crumb. Mm-hmm. And he's... Um, one of these avant-garde 60s and 70s composers and his piece Black Angels was a string quartet it was a protest of the Vietnam War mm. and it's really hard to listen to it's <laughs> you know it's really uh, it's jagged and jarring yeah, most of yeah. the way through and then but it's got this section in the middle I think it's in, uh, nine parts uh, and in in the middle there's this section where people are bowing wine glasses with violin bows mm. And I think having that section bookended by these really challenging and dissonant sections where the, where the, it's basically like, uh, sounds like, you know, strings as demons, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, um, right. Uh, highlighted the beauty of the sounds of the glass in general. Mm. Um, and that was like a rabbit hole that I fell into. Yeah. Um, and realized that I could use glass just by, in the, the old, you know, childhood annoying parents at the dinner table way <laughs> of running your fingers around the rim to create the kind of pad tones that I wanted um, in the music that I was creating at that time. And the thing that I was trying to achieve was doing some music that was inspired partially by the uh, world of classical music, historical mm-hmm. and modern. Mm-hmm. Um, coupled with my love of electronic music, mm-hmm. um, but all with organic instruments. And glass fit that bill really well. The aesthetics of having to deal with water all the time mm-hmm. and the difficulties that that brings into the process is yeah. actually um, something I'm really enamored with in a way. Mm-hmm. It's like every time I set up to play, I'm also, I, ha- I have to take this moment before I begin every concert where I have to immerse my hands in the water. Mm. They've already been cleaned of all of their oils, so they're like yeah. squeaky clean. Before I start, I have to make sure that they're really wet. So I have to take this pause at the beginning of my concerts where I immerse my hands in the bowl, close my eyes. And it's like I'm having this hand baptism every yeah. time I start to play. Yeah. And then as I play, you know, the, like the water in the glasses that I'm performing mm-hmm. on moves and, and, you know, so there's water and there's light happening everywhere. Mm. Um, Every water system in every city is different, so there there are factors of of what kinds of tones I'm able to achieve with my fingers yeah. based on how the water system works in that city. Wow! Um, and 
there's there's it's like an absolution thing that happens yeah. every time I perform. Yeah, it's simultaneously frustrating and beautiful, mm-hmm. and it's it's just something that I've embraced for right now. Yeah, uh, aesthetically as part of the aesthetic process. Uh, there's a song on, on my first record that I put out with glass called The Aviary, mm-hmm. um, which is just called Wine Glasses. And mm-hmm. the point of that song, that song was born out of me spending a lot of time in my original loft space that I lived mm-hmm. in, in New Haven, uh, playing glass for hours and just listening to the combination tones. And those combination tones actually in some way tell you which chord to go to next. Nice. In a really, it, they tell you uh, how to resolve. Yeah. Um, in a really interesting way. Yeah. Um, and I, so I built an entire song out of listening to the combination tones. And fortunately, with the way we recorded that uh, that song, you can hear the combination tones on that rec- on that recording. Um, the thing that the list, the average listener won't know, is that there are more notes that you're perceiving than are being played. Hmm. So. That's fascinating. Um, anyway, glass is endlessly fascinating yeah. to me. Tell me about the song Mutter, Mutter, Mutter. I want to share that with the listeners. And uh, do you have a backstory to that? What is, what is the, the, the storyline or the narrative of that song? Yeah, I wrote that um, because a friend of mine had been uh, going through a really difficult time where his, his life was basically fell apart. Um, and uh, I really felt for him in that moment. And I was at a point where I had left everything that uh, I had built uh, in terms of my career in the Northeast and moved to a farm in Oregon and felt like in a lot of ways I was starting from the ground up, Mm -hmm. um, um, building new aspects of my career, going into film, composing more. Um, And um, so it's a song about how, uh, so during that season, uh, it was a winter season that I was writing this, and I had uh, we heat our cottage with wood heat. So every morning I would get up and I'd have to rebuild the fire. And um, uh, there was this thing that I recurred to every morning where I would open up our wood stove and I would see a, just a bed of ash. Hmm. Um, and it would look like it was dead. Uh, but when you open the door, if there are live coals under the ash, it's actually this sputtery, muttering sound. Mm-hmm. It's like this glassy, mm-hmm. um, which you could hear, but you wouldn't see it because it was under this bed of coals. But if you could hear that sound, which I called the cinder talk, mm-hmm. then um, you knew that you could just turn, you could stoke those embers, put fresh kindling on them, and a new fire could be started pretty quickly. Thank you.
creative process when you're composing for film um, as opposed to like when you're just writing out of an overflow of, of who you are. Do you find that having a structure to work inside of, you know, where you've got a theme, you've, you've got a, a specific set of parameters, do you find that to be restrictive or do you find that to actually be helpful to your process? Uh, initially, my thought was that it would be restrictive, but actually... It's not at all. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I discovered through, I write for picture a lot these days and in tons of contexts. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll write for films and I've written music for brands mm -hmm. like Toyota or Pepto-Bismol. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that I've discovered over the, over the course of years of doing that is that you can't ever really not be yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you Even for somebody who is uh, a gifted mimic, yeah. which some of us have the double-edged sword mm -hmm. gift slash a handicap of being able to mimic well mm -hmm. even if you're a gifted mimic at some point all of the things that you're influenced by and that you're told uh, to to steer toward mm -hmm. have to be filtered through the creator that you are yeah um, and that creator that you are is a powerful force You said a few minutes ago you were talking about originality and your, your own personal uniqueness and that's a subject that's close to my own heart. Matter of fact, the, um, one of the last podcasts that I just did was, was on that subject, originality and likeness. So I'm, I'm really fascinated to know how has your journey of self-discovery as an artist um, taken shape? Yeah, it's... I think I focus less on originality the, mm -hmm. these days than I focus on permission. That's good. Um, originality is a, is a strange beast because really all of us operate within a context. Mm -hmm. um, context is probably the most important word in my musical life. Mm -hmm. um, because everything, every piece of music that you create is created within a context and is put out into a context. So, so context really shapes originality in a big way for you. Is in context shapes, context informs the choices I make a yeah. lot. Um, and that's okay. As a musician in this day and age, mm -hmm. you're, never, you're never putting something out that isn't born out of a context mm -hmm. and being delivered into a context. Yeah. Yeah. So actually sometimes the line that you have to walk is a tightrope. Yeah. So say there's this glass instrument that I've created virtually out of this, these glasses that I've made. And we actually had this struggle with the, um, the Psalms film that we were mm -hmm. working on, the Bono and Eugene Peterson piece, where I created a really beautiful piece of music for the opening, um, which we loved. But contextually, the instrument sounded a little bit too... Um, uh, fantastical mm -hmm. and having no context for the piece except for the opening the black screen and credits we just couldn't use this piece of music it mm -hmm. was it was brought bringing the feel of the film to something that you know you're like are we in Alice in Wonderland right mm -hmm. now or are we in you know are we in Narnia right, right now right.
did you find that the topic uh, of the film influenced the direction of the music for you? Um, yeah, it highly did, actually. Yeah. Um, there's a moment in the film where Bono does a, a solo, uh, he just does an impromptu solo vocal performance mm. of uh, the 23rd Psalm Hmm. Um, in a version which is probably well known in the Church of England in Ireland. Um, the tune is Crimond, C-R-I-M-O-N-D. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really well known and it's one that he um, probably knows from his childhood. Yeah. Um, and that was a jumping off place in some ways mm -hmm. thematically. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we actually developed a lot of musical themes mm -hmm. for the film based on some of the musical movement within the uh, original uh, score of Cremond, which and interestingly, as a as a point of interest, when I went to dig into the original, I found that uh, a new respect for Bono's musical prowess because not only did he um, he just came in right on this on the original key of the original song wow. in its original setting, <laughs> um, acapella with no reference yeah. available to him at wow. the time. Which I was pretty struck by. Yeah. Um, uh, and so we used that thematically as a jumping-off place, mm -hmm. and then in in typical composerly fashion, I really played with it a lot. And yeah. Turned it on its head and and turned it around, dug it about, mm -hmm. and and messed with it quite a bit. Your forebears, they gave as much and passed to you their strength and love, their failures too. It's all in your blood, but you still don't know what it's going to be. So share your was this um, point musically of really wanting to find an atmosphere of reverence that mm -hmm. wasn't overblown, yeah. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because these are two figures about whom one could make much if one wanted to. Right. Uh, you know, you feel in the back of your mind like you want to talk about the thematic material musically in a way that doesn't uh, aggrandize it mm -hmm. um, in a way that is distracting yeah. and doesn't aggrandize the people in a way that is distracting but actually just gets into the the moment mm -hmm. and the emotional moment with them Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. 
If you'd like to find out more information on Cinder Talk, you can go to makersandmystics.com or to cindertalk.com. We'll see you next time.